Well, in a recent conversation with some uh, NBC colleagues, we observed how the period of the exile described in the Old Testament has gotten a lot of attention during our current pandemic. Sermons and devotional reflections have focused on Judah's time of exile in which the people were restricted to Babylon, having been torn away from their homes and homeland. It was a time when God's promise to King David regarding an eternal throne for his descendants seemed to be suspended as Babylon had the only monarch at the time who ruled over Judah. It was a time when the very presence of God was in question because the temple of God's presence had been destroyed by Babylon, and many understood that God must have abandoned them as the prophets had forewarned all those years because of the nation's sin and their apostasy. So even today, preachers and teachers have been reflecting recently on the similar sense of despair and abandonment that many are feeling today during our state and national restrictions and our elongated period of isolation. Beginning early in ancient Judah's exile time, God began sending word through prophets that God had indeed not abandoned Judah. Oracles promising return and restoration are recorded throughout the prophetic literature. At NBC, our students over the years have often recited the words of such prophets uh, like Jeremiah, which reflect these kind of restoration promises to the exiles. For example, Jeremiah 29, 11, a favorite among our students. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. In the same way, we're familiar with Ezekiel's oracles of promise. For example, from Ezekiel 36, we read, I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you, and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you'll be careful to observe my ordinances. You'll live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people and I will be your God. We recite these oracles because they reflect the character and depth of God's love and faithfulness. For me, there is none so meaningful as the oracle in Isaiah 40. In this instance, the words of the prophet create an image of a divine highway, a highway as if bulldozed and steamrolled through the Syrian desert as a loving parent eagerly races toward hurting children to embrace them, to renew them, and to bring them home from exile. I see gathered here all the dramatic scenes of any father or mother who has run toward their lost and frightened child, groaning with longing to hold them, tears filling their eyes, eager to bring comfort and healing. And so we read in Isaiah 40, a voice cries out, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and a rough places a plain. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all people shall see it together. 
For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This oracle in Isaiah reaches a crescendo when the exhortation just a few verses later reads, Get up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good tidings. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. As the Judean exiles in the 6th century BC long to hear these words of hope and promise, we too are anxious for the coming of our God. We're eager to hear that herald of good tidings exclaim, here is your God. The season of Advent brings these desires and expectations to a peak as we celebrate God's coming in the Christ child. While the Judean exiles were blessed by the fulfillment of God's promise to come to them, liberate them from exile, and restore them to the promised land, even so, we celebrate God's unique coming to the world. In the case of the Judean exiles, God came as almighty divine God and rescued them and delivered them. And for us, God has come wrapped in humanity, walking among us as a human being in the person of Jesus Christ, born in the city of Bethlehem at that historical moment when Caesar Augustus had decreed a census and Quirinius was governor of Syria. This incarnation of God in Christ is the greatest fulfillment of God's coming to people. Not just the almighty divine being, but the almighty divine being appearing as one of us and walking among us. This is the greatest source of hope and inspiration. And it brings me to my annual reading of Dorothy Sayers' words in an essay entitled, The Greatest Drama Ever Staged. She begins this little segment by asking what the church thinks about Christ. So she writes, what does the church think of Christ? The church's answer is categorical and uncompromising, and it is this, that Jesus bar Joseph, the carpenter of Nazareth, was in fact, and in truth, and in the most exact and literal sense of the words, the God by whom all things were made. His body and brain were those of a common man. His personality was the personality of God, so far as that personality can be expressed in human terms. He was not a kind of demon pretending to be human. He was in every respect a genuine living man. He was not merely a man so good as to be like God. He was God. Now, this is not just a pious commonplace. It is not commonplace at all. For what it means is this, among other things, that for whatever reason God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death, God had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game God is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and the lack of money, to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, 
despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it all well worthwhile. Dorothy Sayers also wrote a series of plays, dramas about the life of Christ that were broadcast on the BBC. And in that plays about those plays about the life of Christ, when she comes to the scene where the wise men came to visit the Christ child, Sayers depicts Joseph and Mary and the child now staying in a shepherd's cottage being hosted by a kind shepherd family who did not want to leave them in that old stable over there in the inn. So I'd like to read to you just a brief scene from that drama in which the shepherd's daughter, whose name is Zilla, and then the shepherd's wife, whose name we don't have, and then Mary and Joseph, they're all talking together in front of the wise men, and they're talking about the gifts which the wise men have brought to give to Jesus. So here's a portion of that, that drama. Zilla says, oh, look at the great gold crown. Look at the censer, all shining with rubies and diamonds and the blue smoke curling up. How sweet it smells and the myrrh and aloes, the sweet cloves and the cinnamon. Isn't it lovely? And all of these for our little Jesus. Let's see which of the presents he likes best. Come, baby, smile at the pretty crown. Shepherd's wife, oh, what a solemn old-fashioned look he gives it. Zilla, he's laughing at the censer. Shepherd's wife, he likes the tinkling of the silver chains. Joseph, he has stretched out his little hand and he grasped the bundle of myrrh. Shepherd's wife, well, there now, you never can tell what they'll take a fancy to. And then Mary says, do they not embalm the dead with myrrh? See now, you sorrowful king, my son has taken your sorrows for his own. My son has taken your sorrows for his own. Later, the wise men are off by themselves at their tents, and they're reflecting together over the day. Caspar says, well, royal brothers, the star has led us by unexpected ways. Melchior says, the treasures we chose for a king's palace serve now as playthings for a baby. And what became of all our fine compliments and prophetic speeches? Balthazar, I think we forgot our wisdom and we could only ask questions like schoolboys. Caspar, all man's learning is ignorance and all man's treasures are toys. But you, Balthazar, you found a strange new word to speak. You said, hail king of heaven. And again, Mary, mother of God, what put that into your heart to say? Balthazar said, don't ask me. I spoke like a man in a dream, for I looked at the child, and all about him lay the shadow of death, 
but all within him was the light of life. And I knew that I stood in the presence of the mortal immortal, which is the last secret of the universe. These reflections on the birth of Jesus remind me of the mysterious and merciful grace wrapped up in a wondrous baby. For in this baby, God Almighty, having become human, has indeed taken our sorrows for his own and given to us the light of life. In the midst of our exile, the pandemic, and all of our personal sorrows, we anticipate with great hope and inspiration the advent of the light of life, God incarnate, the wondrous Christ child who is the salvation of the world.